Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have uh, your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't, there's one beneath the chair in front of you or near you. Wow. That went from like Michael's voice to like the voice of God or something like that. I kind of like that. Can we do that again? I felt very authoritative. (laughs) Uh, Luke chapter 10. And if you've been with us, uh, you know that over the last now 18 months, we've been walking slowly through the gospel of Luke, uh, trying to understand the heart of Jesus that we see that comes through Luke's words. And today we're going to look at what is probably Jesus' most famous parable. Many refer to it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is where it begins in Luke 10, verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him. And went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, this conversation is between Jesus and what we might call a professor of theology at Yale Divinity School. 
Somebody that everyone would have respected. Someone who we would say knew the Bible backward and forward, inside and out. And the question really centers around one concept or one idea. And that concept is mercy. At the end of the parable, Jesus asks, who's the neighbor? And the guy says, the one who showed mercy. Now, for us, in our context, the word mercy might be something akin to the word Jesus uses, pity. Kind of looking at someone going, oh, that's really too bad. Or mercy might be when your kid's baseball team is beating the other team so badly they enact what we call the mercy rule, which is like the most deflating thing for the other team. You didn't just lose The parents and officials forced you to forfeit the game because you suck that much. I mean, just let the game go on. I think there's a lot of teachable moments if we don't enforce the mercy rule. It's also showing kindness or it's being generous, whatever it is. But we kind of have this concept around mercy. But mercy in the Jewish tradition and in the Jewish context has long had a much deeper meaning. It's the word chesed. Why don't you all say chesed? Oh, yes, yeah, some of you are doing the ch, exactly. Just reach forward and wipe your neighbor's uh, back of their head. Say, say it again, chesed. Perfect. Now, if someone ever asks you, do you speak Hebrew? You can say, un poquito. Chesed is a central concept within the Jewish tradition, and that word is translated mercy, but there's a depth to it. It's used over 250 times in the Hebrew scriptures, and it really points toward the heart of God and God's disposition toward humanity. Now, it's not only God's disposition toward the people of Israel, who are routinely called God's people, but it speaks towards God's disposition toward all of humanity, regardless of where they are from. And it's this concept, this attitude of heart that people see in God that they then say, well, then this is how we ought to live. Because they recognize that there's a relationship between God and humanity, which means then that there is a relationship between me and all humanity, between all people. And hesed should be the defining characteristic of that. And so hesed didn't just mean showing kindness or showing pity. It was actually central to the concept of what was called covenant. And covenant was an agreement in one's relationship. It was one side saying, I will do this in relationship in response to you, and another saying, and I will do this in relationship in response to you. We will agree to the terms of our relationship. And so if you were practicing mercy, They would use words not like necessarily pity or generosity, but they would use words like fidelity, steadfast love, loving kindness. Because hesed or mercy carried with it this idea of I am fulfilling the covenant, the contract, the agreement that you and I have agreed to. Some have said that hesed is love in action. That when you see someone practicing mercy, what you see is the love of your neighbor as yourself. You see it happening right before your eyes. And that speaks toward the importance of it. 
Because at the beginning of the story, the expert in the law says to Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says, well, how do you read it? And he says, love God, love neighbor. And Jesus says, yes, do this and you will live. And this is this idea of how important it is. Jesus himself said loving God and loving neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. And so if mercy is love and action, then showing mercy is the full fulfillment of the law. That's why this story points toward this idea of mercy as the single most important thing. Because it's what produces this love in action. It's what leads one to fulfill the law. Now, of course, the person listening as an expert in the law probably would have expected the priest or the Levite maybe to do this. But nobody expected the Samaritan. Which is what makes this story so scandalous. And I want to ask the question this morning, why would a Samaritan ever be the one to show mercy? Why would a Samaritan be the one to put love in action? Why did Jesus frame it that way? Well, to get there, let's think about the characters in the story. There's an individual going from Jerusalem to Jericho, a notorious route if there ever was one. Jerusalem was a city that sits about 2,000 plus feet above sea level, and Jericho is a city that sits over 1,000 feet below sea level. It's just above the Dead Sea. And the road that winds through there goes through what's called the Wadi Kelt, which means the Kelt Valley. And it was winding and it was treacherous and there was a lot of little rock outcroppings and and little places where robbers could hide. And it was so notorious and so dangerous that in Jesus' day, the Romans actually set up guard towers along the road to protect travelers because people were routinely being robbed and beaten. And so the beginning of the story, everyone's like, yeah, we know this part. And then Jesus says, and then a priest is going down the same road. Now, it's well known in history that a lot of priests and a lot of Levites, people who served a religious function for the nation of Israel, lived in Jericho. And the reason they lived in Jericho is because the prices, the cost of living was too high in Jerusalem. So we might say, like, they were going from Denver to Lakewood, something like that. And so they're walking down, and he comes upon this fella who's beaten half dead. And he's naked. Now, if he's half dead, he's probably not moving around very much. And Jesus says, and he passes on by him, which because the road was so narrow, it means he probably literally stepped over him and kept going. And then the Levite comes, and the Levite does the same exact thing. Now, there's a lot of conjecture. Like, why would they have done this? Why would they have walked by this guy? Some of the most popular opinions say this, well, they probably assumed he was dead. And according to the Jewish religion and the Jewish faith, if you came into contact with a corpse, with a dead body, you were ritually unclean. And so the priest and the Levite who are coming down from Jerusalem, maybe having just served in the temple, maybe having just, we could say, done ministry, 
don't want to make themselves ceremonially unclean. They had been up there for a bit. They want to get home. And if they touch this corpse and bury it, not only would it have been a lot of work, but now they would have to turn around and go all the way back up to Jerusalem before they went home to see the family. And so they just kept walking on by. And some of you are like, but that's terrible. It may be terrible, but here's what's really interesting. It's actually not violating the scripture. What they did by stepping over him, if they did it because they were trying to remain ritually pure, it's not violating any verse in all of scripture. Now, there was, there was rules outside of the text that said if you come along a dead body, even if you're the high priest, you need to bury it. But the Bible itself didn't say that. And so they really weren't sinning as we think of it. It's not a sin of commission. They're not doing something. But it is a sin of omission. It's what they're not doing. And, and so maybe they had this idea of like, well, I know what all of this would entail but I'm really actually not violating scripture. So I'll just keep on going. By the way, anytime religion allows you to ignore the needs of others, it's very poor religion. Don't give me chapter and don't give me verse. Anytime you don't pursue the highest and best good for anyone else, whatever it is you've been told to believe is absolute rubbish. Now the other conjecture is this. They come along, they see this guy beaten half to death, and they think to themselves, I wonder how far away the people who did this are. And so not only do they step over him, but they start going faster, because what if the robbers are still here? I don't want this to happen to me. And so in a way that, if we're honest, is a little bit understandable, if they're on their own and by themselves, they don't want to risk getting beaten up, and so they take, believe that their safety and their security is more important than this guy on the road. And so they rush off down the road to Jericho. And I imagine when they got home, their wife and their kids were like, hey, how was your time up at the temple? Oh, it was great. How was the walk home? Oh, that was fine. Because who's going to show up and be like, yeah, I saw this guy. He looked dead. I'm not sure if he was. And I stepped over him just so I could get home to you, dear. Like something, you have to believe something's going on in their head, and yet somehow, even though they walk past, for whatever reason, they just do it. But was there something going on in their head? More importantly, was there something going on in their hearts? Jesus then continues the story and then says, and along came, and I have to believe he had a long pause. Because if you were a listener in Jesus' day, and if you were the expert in the law, and he paused, he would have said, and along came, and they would have said, an Israelite. Because there's a lot of documentation that shows that there were three way, or uh, one way of talking about the people of Israel that encapsulated everyone. Jewish scholars point this out, Christian scholars point this out. They would say the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. The priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. The priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. As a way of talking about the people who had the sacred function in the world and everybody else. And so Jesus says, and along came, and you can almost hear people like, yeah, 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 an Israelite. And then he says, a Samaritan. And I wish like someone had had an organ at that point, like dun, 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 you know what I mean? Because now they're thinking, oh, you're going to come and finish the job. We know how you guys are. And he says, the Samaritan comes along, 
And when he sees him, he's moved inside with compassion. He gets off his donkey. He bandages the fellow's wounds. He pours oil and wine on them, puts them then on his donkey, and walks him the rest of the way. Now keep in mind, Samaritans and Jewish people hated one another. And so if you were a Jewish person and you saw a Samaritan walking along with a Jewish person who was beaten half to death, you might think, cannot believe you did that to him. So not only is he moved with compassion, but he risks something by taking this fellow with him down to Jericho. And then it says he checks him into a hotel, he stays the night with him, and then he goes to the hotel manager and says, hey, here's some money, it should cover the next few days, and I'm going to come back on my way, and if he owes you anything else, let me know, and I'll cover all of it. And here's what I find interesting. There's a lot of conjecture about why the priest and the Levite didn't stop But there's surprisingly little about why the Samaritan did stop. What is it that caused the Samaritan to stop and get off his donkey and bandage wounds and pour oil and wine on them and put him on his donkey and take him to Jericho and stay the night and pay for his healing? Now remember, Jesus is speaking to an expert in the law, someone who would have known the Bible backward and forward. Some suggest he probably had the entire thing memorized word for word. And it's likely that when he hears Jesus telling this story, he's not just thinking about the story Jesus is telling, he's thinking about a story from the history of Israel, a story that happened centuries before. There's a story in the Hebrew scriptures about a guy named King Ahaz. Ahaz was the king in Jerusalem, which was the capital of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. And when we're introduced to King Ahaz in the book of 2 Chronicles, this is what we're told. He sacrificed in the valley of Hinnom. Now, that place, valley of Hinnom, was so awful and so disreputable that anytime Jesus refers to hell in the gospels, he's referring to the valley of Hinnom. Because this is where all kinds of detestable practices and sacrifices took place. They even say King Ahaz sacrificed in the valley of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire. By the way, now if somebody's like, so what was your Father's Day sermon like? Be like, we learned about a guy who burned his kids in the fire. It was really moving, really challenging. I feel like I'm doing okay as a dad. (laughs) So you get the idea King Ahaz is a bad person. Not only is he a bad person... He's also in an impossible political situation because the king of Aram is laying siege to Jerusalem and then King Pekah, who's a part of the northern kingdom of Israel, wages war on King Ahaz. He supports the Arameans in their battle. And we're told that in one day, the people from the north come down and they kill 120,000 people of Judah, men of Judah, in one single day. And as if that's not bad enough, they then round up women and children to the tune of 200,000 and take them back as their captives. And where is it that they take them? Samaria. And on their way back, they have 200,000 captives. They have blood all over themselves from killing 120,000 people. And they encounter the prophet Oded, who both condemns them and confronts them. 
And in what seems to be an immediate switch, this is what we learn about the men of Samaria, Samaria, the Samaritans, after being confronted by Oded. It says this, the men designated by name took the prisoners, that's the 200,000, and from the plunder, they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys, so they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. Do you hear a few echoes in that? See, this is what Jesus seems to be referring to when he tells this story. That there's a kind of a little bit of an overlap. And what's interesting is those people who went and killed 120,000 people really believed that they were doing the right thing because Judah was a mess. And yet Odad comes out and says, absolutely not. Now you may be wondering, what is it that can cause an entire army who kills 120,000 people, these bloodthirsty, violent, agitated people, what is it that can take them from that place to a place where they're now caring for the captives and the wounded? Well, many point toward the words of Oded himself. Because when Oded confronts them, this is what he says. You have slaughtered them, that is the people of Judah, in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves? But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites you have taken as prisoners. For the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Now you see there two words, fellow Israelites. But in the Hebrew, the more literal translation would be the brothers of your brothers, the sisters of your sisters, the siblings of your siblings. In other words, take your family and bring them back to where they belong. See, what Oded says to them is, listen, you think you're doing that to them, but there is no them. They are your siblings. They are your family. They are your mother and your father. They are just like you. And all of a sudden, something wakes them up and they go, oh my goodness, we're doing this to our own people. And many point toward this idea that when Jesus talks about the Samaritan, many of those in the listening and in the hearing of Jesus' story would have seen the Samaritan as holy other. But if you were with us a few weeks ago, you know that the Samaritans actually were Jewish people just from a different place in the world. That they were, in fact, siblings and family to the Jewish people, to the Israelites. And so it's possible that when the Samaritan comes along and sees this fellow beaten half to death, he doesn't just see somebody on the road that he probably should take care of out of religious obligation. No, he sees somebody that is his own family. Now, I realize that here in the city of Denver, we use the term chosen family. Has anyone heard of this? It's because no one that is here is from Denver. I know we go through this all the time. Some of you are like, I'm a native. I know, we see your bumper sticker. (laughs) And we don't care. Because you're the ones who rarely ever make it up to the mountains. We moved here to enjoy what this state has to offer. You just take up space. By the way, we all came from the Midwest, and now it's really crowded here. If you're not enjoying your state, there's a great place called Ohio. You can do the same thing there. That you do here. There's also Michigan and Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa. There's so much room out there. 
I will drive you. <laughs> so we use the term chosen family because we move out here, we don't have a mom or a dad or siblings or whatever it is. And so we find people that we have something in common with and then all of a sudden we find ourselves celebrating holidays together and they become like our family. You see, it would be one thing if you came up on somebody and they were injured to be like, oh my gosh, how can I help? It would be a whole other thing if you came up on someone and you went, that's, that's my friend. That's my brother. I have a friend named Kevin who told me a story about his 18-year-old daughter going on her first road trip with friends. And they were all excited and he was like, please be safe, please be safe, please be safe, please be safe. And of course, 18-year-olds were like, okay, father. No, they were like, ah, I got this. And he said they were trailering a boat to go to a lake to go skiing. And so they take off, and a few hours later, him and his wife decide to go out for dinner, and they get on the highway, and they drive like a mile, and he sees all the flashing lights up ahead, and they're in traffic the whole time, waiting and waiting and waiting. And as they get closer, he begins to do like the look, and he sees the boat trailer. How many of us, when we're in traffic and we see the lights, we're like, oh, I hope it's not bad, but I really hope they clean this thing up quickly. You ever felt like that? If you're not raising your hand, you're absolutely lying. <laughs> no, I love traffic. It's the best. How would it feel if you're in that situation and then you see the car of your kid? Because this is what happened to him. Everything in that moment changes, doesn't it? You see, the priest and the Levite saw someone that could do something to them. The Samaritan saw his family. He saw someone who was like him. When he saw his pain of the person on the side of the road, he saw his own pain. When he saw his vulnerability, his wounds, he saw everything in him he saw in himself, and he couldn't help but get off the donkey. Because suddenly, someone who had been ostracized by an entire community recognized that this was someone who was just as vulnerable as he is. Robert Capon, in discussing this parable, says this. He says, The priest and the Levite could not bring themselves to go forth out of their safe theological and psychological camp to meet him and bear his reproach. But the Samaritan, already under reproach himself, had no such problem. Instead, he goes to the man on the ground and he involves himself in his suffering. He lays down a very good approximation of his life for someone who isn't even his friend simply because he, as an outcast, finally has found someone who lives in his own neighborhood, namely the place where the discards of respectable religiosity are burned outside the camp, the dump, in other words, to which are consigned the last, the lost, the least, the little, and the dead. See, it wasn't just that he saw his family member on the side of the road. He also had an understanding of who he was, which allowed him to see that he was, in fact, like this person. One of the things I love, among many things, about Jesus is one of the only times that he compares himself to human beings is in Matthew chapter 25, where he says, whatever you do to the least of these you do it to me. That Jesus had this picture of himself of, yeah, I find myself in the people that we tend to overlook, that we tend to allow to be an object of scorn. Those are the people that are like me. 
You see, the real challenge of this parable doesn't seem to be just being someone who goes, oh, okay, I'll get off my donkey and I'll help someone who has need and then I'll take them there and I'll give generously. The real scandal, the real challenge of this parable seems to be the heart and the mindset of the kind of person who says, I see myself in that person. That even though there is a political and ethnic divide between the Samaritans and the Jewish people in Jesus' day, this is someone who has the heart to say, no, there is no divide. He is like me and I am like him. That we are like one another. Several years ago, on a Sunday morning, I preached a sermon about immigration. And one of the things I started with was, hey, you know, this has gotten far too partisan to even have a discussion about. And if we begin with partisan politics talking about any issue, we've already lost the plot. We need to begin talking about the heart of God. And so I preached the sermon. And at one point in the sermon, I I asked the question, how many of you, if your kid was in danger or if your child was under the threat of hunger, would do anything you could to provide for your child? So I finish the sermon, I say amen, we sing some songs, I get up, do the blessing, and right as I'm getting off the platform, this person comes thundering down the aisle. And I was like, I don't think they want to give me a hug. And they went up to me and got right in my face and put their finger almost near my nose and said, I don't care what their kids are going through, I am nothing like them. And I was like, so the participate area is in the back, if you want to know more about the life of Denver Community Church, right? <laughs> it's fascinating, by the way, how Christians treat each other, isn't it? Like, I mean, we're the only ones who wound people and then shoot our wounded. We just think it's okay. Like, if we're, if we're protecting God, all bets are off. So this person kept going and just yelling at me and everything else. And I just listened. Now, I imagine that story upsets some of you. How, di- how can they say that? I can't believe someone would actually have that attitude. It-, it might cause you to kind of grit your teeth and tense up a little bit, especially the many of you here who do incredibly important and beautiful work with the immigrant community here in the city of Denver. You might even be tempted to say, those people, I am nothing like them. Which, if that's where you are at any level, you actually are very much like them. And if you saw them on the side of the road, or you saw them with their kids trying to make it into another country for the sake of their children, would you walk on by and say, remember what you said at Denver Community Church to that pastor? Or would you say, wow, that's my family. Because remember, Jesus when he encounters the people of Jerusalem, weeps over all of them. The ones who were for him and the ones who were against them. This is the challenge of the parable. It asks in some way, who do we, we believe are like us? But it also asks the question, who do you believe is not like you? Man, it really drills down into the core and into the heart of who we are, doesn't it? But my hope for all of us, is that we would actually take some time with this question and be brutally honest. Who are the people that we believe are, in fact, nothing like 
us. And my hope is that we would be brutally honest with that so that we would come to see that all human beings, regardless of who they are, are just like us. Human beings made in the image and likeness of an almighty, loving God, all of whom are deserving of chesed, of mercy, of love and action. And I pray we will have eyes to see that so that we too may go and do likewise. Let's pray together. God, we recognize um, that the person of Jesus is so deeply challenging, at times feels like an affront to our senses. Yet so often we can get comfortable in our little echo chambers. We can make caricatures out of others. We, we can assume that they have it wrong and we have it right and they are nothing like us. But give us eyes to see that every single human who has ever lived and will ever live, anyone who has the breath of life in their lungs is deserving of hesed. That we, in fact, bear relationship to all people. I ask that you would challenge us, disturb us in our comfort so that we might be those who go and show mercy. We pray these things together in the strong name of your son Jesus and all my friends said. Thank you.